podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. For those of you who may not be familiar with me, I'm an attorney and sports writer in the Seattle area. When I'm not doing my attorney thing, I'm writing about the business and law of soccer in the United States. I write for my own website, SoccerESQ.com. I'm also a contributor at The Athletic, and I also contribute now at Sounder at Heart, covering the Sounders more locally. I'm also moving my podcast over to the Sounder at Heart podcasting network, and as my first podcast, I've got a good one. I've got the Sounders president of soccer and general manager, Garth Logaway, who was a fellow attorney. So we spend a fair amount of time talking about his post-playing career and transition into being an executive. We talk a lot about law school and the bar. Uh, spoiler alert, they're both terrible. We also talk a little bit about his time at Real Salt Lake, as well as his time at the Sounders. And I also ask him a little bit about why there are so many lawsuits going on in the world of soccer uh, these days. So it's a great interview. I hope you all enjoy it. And without further ado, let's uh, talk to Garth Lagerway. Uh Joining me now is the Sounders president of soccer and general manager, Garth Lagerway, sitting here in his offices down here in Starfire. Uh, Garth, uh, again, thanks for taking the time to uh, sit down and interview uh, with me. Uh, thanks for having me, Mickey. Well, pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, we're recording this uh, just after the news that uh, Chad Marshall uh, retired. Uh, just brief thoughts. Uh, obviously, it was uh, you talked a little bit about it yesterday at practice, but obviously a, t- a tough thing to see him go. Yeah, uh, great career. One of the best domestic players in the history of MLS. Uh, you know, three Defender of the Year awards. Can't say enough about the guy, and, and is one of the guys that was just likable. You know, and, and it's maybe not a word you, you use all the time, but. In our locker room, you know, on and off the field, everybody liked Chad, and I think that that's a real testament that uh, you you can maintain a kind of sense of humor about things while you're playing at that high a level. And I think the other maybe underrated quality about him is just how good a soccer player he was. Um, you know, you're talking about a guy that I think had uh, either zero or one red card his whole career, limited number of yellow cards his whole career, and, you know, was able to play out of the back with a ball on his feet and uh, score goals with his head and, you know, just an all-around player with, with very few weaknesses and uh, proud to have called him a sounder. Yeah, and it's obviously tough to see him go uh, from the other side. Uh, uh, lots of testimonials from fans and, and all that stuff. And actually... You know, this is obviously somewhat coincidental, as you talked about previously, but we had a new arrival at uh, training today, uh, recording this on the 23rd of May. Uh, Javier Ariaga just uh, had his first training with the team. Uh, so just uh, obviously another uh, replacement for Chad, not per se, but another player that could come in and take over since he's now gone. Just your uh, thoughts on uh, Javier coming in. Really excited for Javier. Um, it was really nice to see how excited he was today. Um, really went out of his way to introduce himself to people and was just a person that has a presence and that has a calmness about him. And those are really qualities you look for as a center back. You know, we, we saw him when we scouted him that he was the captain of his team and that he was organizing, uh, even as a 24 year old. And again, that's, that's pretty impressive. And, you know, just think that he's going to be a good fit, uh, particularly as we become more and more a possession team. Uh, he's a guy who's very good at playing out of the back uh, and then also can score, pop up and score an occasional goal on a set piece, you know, average two or three goals a game uh, doing that for his team in Ecuador as well. So another player with just a, a good all-around skill set, fast, strong, young, really need to get younger at that position group. So uh, really excited about to add Javier. 
Yeah. And uh, did you expect him to, I know you were hopeful that he was going to get in this soon, but uh, was there much of a delay in, in the paperwork, or is this about standard for these types of transactions? This this is normal. I mean, a couple of weeks is what it usually takes. And, and it, look, it, there's always different personal circumstances and country-to-country circumstances and all that, but all things considered, this one went pretty smoothly. Cool. And so... Now that the transfer window is closed, uh, and obviously Jovan Jones obviously will hopefully be here soon as well. Uh, we talked a little bit about this uh, earlier, but uh, this is kind of the downtime for you. Is that a fair way to put it? Now, obviously, downtime is relative uh, in, in sporting and uh, soccer terms, but uh, this is kind of the uh, a period where you get to sit back and, and watch your work uh, out on the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and to your point, it's, it's you're not idle with anything, and there's academy playoffs coming up, and and lots of player movement with defiance, and um, but it's a lot of things where the processes are now in place. You know, and you've gotten through the first window, you have some idea of what your team is, uh, you have some idea of what your team is not, um, and we'll find out a lot more about our team, I think, in the next uh, six weeks because we're going to have a bunch of guys called up uh, for for the big tournaments for Copa America and Gold Cup in particular, uh, but also for some qualifiers and for some other games. So. I think it'll really stretch us, but I think the the upside of that from a general manager's chair is we're going to get to see a, a couple of young guys play and see how they do uh, and then see where we are in terms of that progression. Uh, and so we're excited about that and you know, then excited about potentially adding one more piece uh, in the summer and uh, getting prepared for that. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, if there's a, a down period during the season, it's usually in this mid-May uh, window where the league, I think, I think virtually every league that I can think of is done playing as of last weekend uh, in terms of Europe and South America. And, uh, you know, we're beginning our process now of initiating uh, uh, who we're, who we're going to try and sign and get in by uh, July. Yeah. So uh, we'll circle around to that at the end, but I also wanted to kind of just uh, talk with you a little bit about your post-soccer career, uh, lawyer career, and uh, your law school career, obviously, by extension, uh, you know, for those of who don't know Garth is a lawyer, uh, and so am I. So I'm interested in this kind of stuff. So uh, you went to law school at Georgetown. I wanted to just talk about, uh, obviously, that's a fantastic school, a <laughs> law school to go to. Uh, what went into your decision to pick Georgetown? And when, after you finished your soccer career, did you decide that law school and uh, being an attorney was kind of a career path you wanted to pursue? So uh, when I was an undergrad at Duke, um, I took the LSAT. And it was uh, one of those things where, you know, had been in school straight through, and, you, and it was the LSAT, at least I don't know what it is now, but at the time it was good for five years. So whatever okay. your score was, you could hold for five years. Um, and I think that was even, that was the window in which you had to use it to apply. So in theory, you could matriculate six years after having taken the test. And so I knew I wanted to try this pro soccer thing, and at the time I was literally still a senior in college, and so I, you know, I didn't know. So you took the LSAT when you were like twenty-one. Yes. Or so. Yes. Yeah. And and it was because it was it was uh, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was it was fall of ninety-four. Yeah, fall of ninety-four, um, which meant I would have been twenty-one because I was born in seventy-two. So, uh, and. You know, at the time, didn't know if I was going to get drafted, didn't know it. We, to be fair, with 94, there's a lot of buzz about there's going to be a soccer league, but we didn't know for sure there was going to be a soccer league. Um, and wound up, you know, I went to, to, you know, I played in Germany as a teenager and, and went back there for a period and then uh, played for the uh, immortal Hampton Roads Mariners in the summer of 1995. <laughs> 
in uh, Virginia Beach, in Virginia Virginia, Virginia, uh, with, uh, yep. with Darren Eels as my roommate, uh, who is now the president of uh, Atlanta my United. Name. So small world. Um, and uh, after that, then wound up getting drafted in, in the inaugural draft in 96. And so then embarked and said, you know, I'm, let's see how long I can do the soccer thing and uh, have some fun with it. And, and wound up playing five years in the league. And, and come that that fifth year, I was getting to the point where I was like, all right, I got to make a decision. I don't know, you know, once you've been out of school for five years, it doesn't, you know, I don't think your LSAT score goes up very often. <laughs> that is, I'm sure that's true. Uh, and I'd had, uh, I had 47 career starts. I think I'd had most of them by year four. Uh, and so I was a part time guy, back up for the most part. And, uh, you know, was thinking about going to school. I had actually been, so I had applied, so I applied, this is truly in the weeds now, Mickey. <laughs> applied, I got, and I got, uh, wait, I had, was waitlisted, I think, if my memory's right, at Georgetown and Duke, and was told I could get into either one based on, uh, you know, my qualifications and stuff like that from, I think it must have been my advisor at Duke telling me this. Um, and I chose Georgetown. Even Duke was a higher rated law, law school, but, uh, Georgetown I chose. Because it was in a, uh, I'd spent a, enough time in Durham and thought I might want to branch out professionally while I was doing it. At the time, I was interested in potentially heading into politics, and so being in D.C. was interesting. And I knew too that they had a, uh, a soccer team, D.C. United, um, and I had done some writing as a player. Uh, had subbed in for Grant Wall. Yeah, Sports Illustrated, right? Yep, yep, doing Grant's column when Grant went on vacation, and just some nibbits, nibbles here and there, and I uh, was interested in doing TV and and. You know, long story short, while I was in school, um, wound, wound up, you know, the choice is influenced by where could I do all these other things. And uh, because I went to D.C., went, because I went to Georgetown, you know, intern on the Hill, but also did a World Cup show and uh, did TV for D.C. United, uh, you know, again, as a part-timer. But um, just was able to do enough where I, I think I kept my name in the marketplace and, and uh, stayed relevant and watched lots of soccer games. And um, then when I got my break, when uh, when Dave Chackett's, uh approached me, then uh, I was able to, to take advantage of that. Um, so uh, what years were you in law, uh, law school in Georgetown then? 01 to 04. All right. So I probably just missed you. Um, I did a internship with the NFL Players Association in 2000, summer 2000, my, between my second and third year law so school. D. Smith worked with me at yeah. Latham. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I know, I know, I don't, I can't say I know D well at this point, but I, I actually did a case for D when he was a partner at Latham. And so he's, he's a good man. Most lawyers, I, I would say, uh, you know, law school is just something to get through <laughs> the process to get through. Agree. Uh, how was your, uh, just general experience in law school? But, you know, Georgetown, obviously a good school. Did you find it competitive or did you find it you know, a collaborative with the, uh, fellow students? <laughs> uh, what law school have you been to that's yeah. collaborative? Yeah. Well, you know, it depends on who you, uh, what kind of group of people you meet. I mean, uh, there's always, there's a cutthroat nature to law school, obviously. And, uh, but I met some good friends there that I'm still friends with. And so it wasn't too, yeah, I didn't find it too bad. I didn't go to Georgetown. Uh, I decided to go to California or in California, San Diego. So that's, that's, uh, that's a much more intelligent choice. Yeah, right? yeah. San Diego for law school. It sounds yeah. unbelievable. It was a nice three years. I'd have to say, uh, you know, nothing wrong with uh, after class going down to Tijuana and having a couple of uh, uh, street tacos while you, while you studied. So there you go. Uh, so how did you find it, just generally speaking, uh, your your law school experience, aside from the cutthroat nature? Uh, yeah, uh, ruthless. I mean, like, mm. like what people, and I think this is pretty typical, uh, you know, at Georgetown, 
you didn't get grades, you, you, you ranked papers. Mm. So, you know, you took an exam and you were in competition against everybody in the class. Yeah. And then a certain number of people got A's and a certain number of people got B's and a certain number yeah. got C's. And it was all based on how you stacked up to the competition. And it led to a, a pretty brutal environment. And I think my, you know, I had obviously done something atypical before coming back to law school. And, but I like to think that I had a little bit of perspective on life. And, um, at Georgetown, there are a lot of, overachievers, let's say, uh, go-getters who are coming straight from college and maybe didn't have a lot of perspective about what the real world was like and uh, kind of uh, attached a lot of self-valuation to whether or not they got an A or an A- minus in that class. And, and it, you know, it kind of ramped up the competitive nature of things a little bit more. And, you know, to, as someone who competed for a living and for a livelihood, uh, I thought some of the some of the stress and tension was, was, was misplaced. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I, I can't look, I can't look in the eye and tell you I enjoyed, uh, that every aspect of law school. I, I, <laughs> yeah, well, that's I made, true. I made, yeah. I made lifelong friends. Sounds yeah. similar to you. Um, folks that I still stay in touch with and are great people and, um, definitely was a, it was invaluable training and, and, you know, feel lucky to have gotten into Georgetown and provided me the opportunity to go to Latham and, you know, that opened up even more doors and so, I've been I've been really lucky that way uh, that I that I've gotten opportunities um, and you know been willing to work hard once I got those opportunities and parlayed them kind of gradually from Duke to Georgetown to Latham to to uh, RSL to Seattle. Yeah. So uh, that actually uh, segues nicely into uh, your post law school career. Uh, uh, did you summer intern anywhere uh, interesting or? Did you just kind of focus on on your schooling? I was in, I was a summer intern. Well, I did, back then I was in the the boom times. Um, from an economic standpoint, we're still at the at the end of the dot com boom, and so the law firms were crazy. I mean, they, we made like thirty grand interning for Latham. Wow! Uh, in between sophomore and junior year, um, then those days are all long. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but back then, it was you know we always we you know we. Uh, not important, but it, you know, just was that was a totally different experience than I think the kids had even like three, four years later, after the crash in '08, and and uh, you know now you were people were scrapping for jobs and and law firms were cutting back and stuff, and um, but back then they were law firms were hiring anybody they could get their hands on basically, uh, and but the the summer before that was probably one of the best summers of my life. It was um, there was a study abroad program at Georgetown, and so we went to Florence. Uh, and studied there for, I think it was about six weeks. Uh, and it was the same time as the 2002 World Cup. And so, um, the Asia to Europe, uh, time difference meant they were on in the morning and the afternoon. And our classes were in the early evening because it was then, because the, the culture there was you'd eat dinner a little bit later. So we had like this late afternoon classes. So I basically would get up in the morning, watch soccer, go to the cafe, <laughs> go watch soccer all day, go to class. Uh, go to dinner because you couldn't be in Italy and not have uh, some pasta and some red wine and stuff like that and uh, and then try to get like four hours of sleep and then uh, you know do it all over again and somewhere in their study you know probably while looking at the back of my eyelids so yeah. uh, barely survived the semester but uh, it was an incredible experience and Florence is an amazing city and to be able to travel all over Italy and see Rome and Naples and Capri and Cinque Terre and you know uh, it was just a, a really really cool experience yeah so uh, you Graduated barely, it sounds like after after that those kind of experiences, and then so you uh, you hook up with Latham and Watkins who uh, do a lot of work still, 
uh, in the soccer realm. Uh, they represent U.S. soccer on a number of things. Uh, so what, what were you, what was your focus there and, uh, how long did you stay there before you left for Salt Lake? Uh, better part of three years, uh, that I was there at Latham. So, you know, junior associate level stuff, you know, uh, left before I got to the mid, I was just starting to get mid-level associate and, you know, the year in big firm, for those who don't know, uh, you really, they really grind you for the first two years and then year three, you start to transition into mid-level and by four and five, you're taking on projects that you're running yourself and then, uh, Year eight, at least at Latham, that was when you started, uh, you know, heading on to the partnership track or not on the partnership track and was the next kind of separator. So, but, uh, but I was in the, I was in the, 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 the alternative we called it the salt mines and, and, uh, referred to sleeping in your office as, uh, living, <laughs> living the dream. Uh, super, you know, banging hundred, hundred hour weeks, doing M&A, uh, doing deals and, and, uh, you know, you find out things like, uh, cognitively, uh, I can do about 45 hours, uh, billable hours in three days. And after that, I started to fall off a little bit. And, and it was actually, scary as it sounds, it was actually important to know that because everybody kind of had a range somewhere in there. And you had to sleep some in order to, to, to be able to function at a high level. Yeah. And, you know, you have to, you know, your attention to detail is so, you know, consuming when you're doing these deals and the filings for the SEC and some of the things that you're doing on, on an M&A deal. Uh, but I also did a lot of uh, hedge fund work, so uh, private equity and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, just, I was was really well trained again, and and was lucky because you know when people hear us lawyers complain about hundred hour weeks, you know the reality is, is that you're jamming in about as much training as you could possibly get into that time frame. And um, work in M and A, you see all different kinds of companies and all different kinds of deals, and you get really exposed to a wide swath of. Uh, you know, industries and techniques and business models. And I just found it invaluable in terms of, uh, you know, learning. And, and uh, you know, there are days when not all the learning experiences were so wonderful, but, but uh, you know, you learn how to work hard. You learn, you kind of learn what hard work really is. And it was funny because uh, hard work means uh, different times in my life spent completely different things. I probably won't, I won't, I won't talk that long about this, Mickey, don't worry. <laughs> but, but you, as an athlete, you train yourself in really intense two-hour segments, 90 minutes at two-hour segments for the first 28 years of my life. Right? That's all I did. And then I went to law school, and when I first started going to law school, reading tests, I'd fall asleep. And it was, and the first time, oh, I'm, I'm terrible. Yeah, they're not always so similar any text, but literally my brain was not used to doing that, to, to going for eight hours and 10 hours and 12 and 14. And, cause I was used to big spikes and coming down, so I had to retrain myself. And then in the long term, you retrain yourself further that, you know, you're going to be here for a hundred hours this week and you need to, you know, folk figure out how to focus over that length of time. Um, and, but anyway, it was, it was good because you think you wind up at the end of all that with some flexibility in terms of you can do both. You know, at, at transfer deadline day, I literally go into law firm mode and I'm like, okay, let's do this. Like, you know, we got to work 30 hours or we're going to work 30 hours. Like, that's the way it goes. And, and it's no big deal and you know you can do it. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the other times it's, it's more low and slow and, and, uh, you're on call 24 seven and you try to keep it even keel. So. Yeah, and actually, uh, just to circle back, uh, obviously, <clears throat> before you can be a lawyer, you have to take the law, uh, the bar exam. Um, and so I'll first ask you, where did you, uh, where did you take the bar, uh, exam? Maryland. Maryland, okay. Um, and obviously I'm, you know, based in Washington. I took it in, in Washington State. And, uh, again, for those who don't know, the bar exam is probably one of the worst experiences of anyone's, of life. anyone's life. Uh, in Washington <laughs> State, again, I've been, I've been taking it since, uh, 2003, I think. Um, uh, and back then, it was basically 18 essay questions um, with specific fact patterns 
on you know specific subjects, and then there was a professional responsibility component. Uh, so it was three days, nine questions each day, and then the third day is a half, you know, a half day, quote unquote, uh, where you uh, you answer. But uh, was Maryland uh, multiple choice or essay or a combination? Both. Yeah, both. Both. I mean, my my bar story is we we went to look. I picked Maryland because you in, in the DC area you pick Mar- uh, DC, Maryland, or Virginia. And you almost everybody picked Maryland or Virginia because if you got a reasonable score, then you basically were, 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 you were you reciprocity. Know, exactly, you were, you were waved into DC. Uh, so even though all the big law firms were in DC, and I was going to work in DC, it was the, the choice was really Maryland or, or Virginia. And Virginia had a much more uh, litigation focus. Like if you want to uh, argue for the Supreme Court, that that was more of that. That that had more weight and more value if you want to get a clerkship. And I was doing more transactional, and so so Maryland made more sense. Um, but me and my buddy. Uh, 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 shared a hotel room because uh, we're students, and that's the kind of budget you could afford. Because we had to we had to go up to uh, Baltimore to take the test. Oh yeah. Uh, and so stay after that for, and that was the night that uh, Barack Obama delivered the keynote address to the Democratic National Convention. Uh, so two thousand four or two thousand three? No, two thousand four. Two thousand four. Uh, and my buddy watched the the speech. Uh, and wound up being a, an influential member of, of the Obama campaign, you know, two years later. And, and, you know, we kind of both took major risks. And I left the law firm to go work for RSL, and he left to go work on the uh, Obama campaign. But it all started that night, the day before I took the bar. Uh, and so I won't forget that. And then, But I, it was two days long, horrendous. You know, <laughs> literally, like, people don't, like, it's a, it's a convention center. So, I mean, there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of people that are doing this and like, you see everything from like people throwing up on the table, like out of nervousness and stuff, to you know people having you know bathroom emergencies, to you know people literally freaking out. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's a it's the biggest moment of some people's lives, and mm-hmm. um, you know you're just again you're just grinding for you know we we my buddy and I we we studied together. And we went to the basement of Georgetown because that was the place where you couldn't get any cell phone service. And we would literally sit in a windowless room for 16 hours a day because, you know, you have to memorize this. Yes. And that's what's so nuts. There's so much, like in law, basically as pressing as a lawyer, you're going to, anything you do, you're going to look up to cite and, yeah. and to support your argument, right? But for the bar, <laughs> you, you have, have to know memorize it. everything. <laughs> and, and so you have this just massive download of, of just stuff that's just got to fit in your head. And it's just this agonizing process to do that. And we, I, we took a class, you know, with a yeah. teacher and yeah. they tell you acronyms and this is how you remember things and, you know. I mean, I think my, our, my go-to was I had a friend who, uh, I uh, graduated with law, uh, from law school in California and she moved up here as well, just coincidentally. Um, and yeah, we basically spent the entire summer together, uh, you know, 10 hours a day. I go over to her apartment, we go to the library, we go, you know, went to the bar a couple of times. Yeah. You, you needed that, yep. you know, that release. And yeah, we just, you know, you looked up subjects, you just, you know, write it on note cards. And I would, I think I wrote out particular subjects probably three or four times, even though, you know, you had the note cards, you could just refer to them. But just the process of writing it helped you understand uh, the subject matter that you're going into. And, yeah, the bar exam up uh, in Washington was essentially the same. Like I said, it was in, a ba- in the Bellevue Convention Center, I think. started at 6 o'clock in the morning, which was just, for me, is horrible yep. because I'm a night owl, not an early bird. And so I would not get any sleep the night before. So I'd be up studying till 2 or 3 o'clock. You'd lay awake for another hour or so, sleep for about 45 minutes, Alarm goes off at five o'clock, and then you'd head over to the convention center. It was just uh, two of the worst days of my life. But you know, once you pass it, you, you essentially don't really have to do it ever again because you can get in reciprocity um, at this at this point. 
So well, tell, tell me about it. Did you guys did you guys do the blue books? Like they have yeah. specially manufactured blue books with the little seals. Seal, yeah, yeah, rip. yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, never, and that, like again, to folks who who don't know, like lot, lot bar exams are really weird because they're, they're they're not as compared to a normal test. They'll ask you a question, but they actually want to know what the answer is and, and what the answer isn't. Yeah, and, and, and how you got there. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you wind up writing these answers that are well, the law says this, and this is the thing that I think is is the way it would go. But here are all the counter arguments, yes. all the arguments of that, because what you're showing is that you know the law, mm-hmm. right? And and so it, and like, how to apply to the facts. Exactly, yeah, and it's just this exhaustive Iraq. process of yes. This, Yes, exactly. Issue, reason, argument, and, and uh, conclusion. Conclusion. Yeah, yeah look at that. Yeah. We, we still, we still got thing. it. <laughs> Fifteen years later, that might be the only thing I got yeah. <laughs> from the bar. But. Yeah. So it was. You know, uh, I'm sure there's people who will be listening to this who are thinking about going to law school, and we may have dissuaded them from uh, taking this career path uh, ever again. Taking on the law school debt is what yeah, I'm dissuading well, and, that, and that also is uh, true as well. So it's like going in a house without the house. Mm-hmm. And there's. It's, again, once it was over, it was the most uh, relieving experience or feeling of my life, and I knew I wouldn't have to ever do it again, and yeah, so it's just uh, it's just one of those things that uh, it's, it's unique to life, uh, because again, you're never going to use it in the way that it's presented in the, uh, you know, in the bar exam form, and again, going forward, you just look this stuff up and, uh, you know, apply it, and, you know, um, anyway, so... Uh, you decide to take off uh, from uh, Latham Watkins and move over to uh, RSL, and obviously you had a great time, great career there. Um, and then, what, what's one of the things uh, your fondest memories about kind of your uh, RSL, uh, your time at RSL, Real Salt Lake? For those who may not know, um, just you know, I got my break. I mean, it was I mean that was what you dreamed about, and and you know, as a goalkeeper, I was I was okay. As I said, I was a backup for most of my career, and. Um, you know, I wanted to find something that I was really, truly good at. And, you know, I thought I could be a pretty good GM. And the reality was at that time in 2007, there really weren't many GMs. Um, the position didn't really exist. Um, but I was fortunate that Dave Checkets had been the youngest general manager in NBA history when he ran the Jazz. Uh, and uh, the way it all came together was that, that uh, you know, he was uh, – Dave was also the owner of the, his group was the owner of the St. Louis Blues in the NHL, uh, and a Latham Watkins client, uh, wanted to buy a piece of the St. Louis Blues, and so I worked on the deal and got to meet, meet Dave, and that's how I wound up at, uh, at, uh, RSL. Um, but in terms of that, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget the first thing that Dave told me when he hired me. And he's like, you know, I'd gone through this exhaustive process and gotten it there, and he kind of sat me down and put, put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, it's whatever you do. Look me in the eye now, and he's you know he's he's like a father figure to me. Like, and uh, he's like, just don't pretend you know what you're doing. And I was like, I kind of think I went like pale or red or something like that. And I was kind of like, oh man, like I, he thinks I'm an idiot. And uh, and but he explained it, and, and what he meant was was super empowering. It was the, the coolest thing that I've been told in this business, which was, uh, you know, you're new, you're young, you're smart. Uh, ask questions, you know, and and by asking questions. I won't think you're stupid. I will think that you are, are seeking knowledge and seeking to get better and seeking to improve, and that's who I want running my franchise. And so to have this sports icon and, and Dave Jackets say, ask me anything, basically, and I'm, a, I'm available to you all the time, and I want you to learn how to do this, it's just not an opportunity you get more than once a lifetime. So just incredibly lucky and, um, you know, just still looking back and kind of, uh, you know, life is sometimes about luck and timing and, and got the opportunity and, and was willing to, to work hard and, and got it done. And, you know, for us, the, when we won 
the title in 2009 in our second year there, I mean, like, that was pretty transcendent. And the kind of PAX RSL, to borrow a quasi-historical term, was September 09 through April of 2011. Um, and that was, uh, we were the best team in MLS for the last two months of the season and wound up literally getting into the eighth seed on the last day because Seattle beat Dallas in a game that was meaningless for them. Uh, I think three other tiebreakers went our way too, but so anyway, we got in on like, I think, a, I think it was literally a five-way tiebreaker and we got in, uh, and made the playoffs and then went on a run, won in penalties twice. I mean, like, it was a blessed kind of, uh, <laughs> you're dancing on the, on the wings of angels there. Um, but then we were, we were very good. The best, and this is, happens a lot in sports. The best RSL team probably was a 2010 team. We were plus 25 goal difference. Uh, we were unbelievable and, uh, we beat, uh, Cruz Azul over two legs, uh, were the first, oh, yes, first, yes. We're mm-hmm. the first, uh, American team to win a, to win a, 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 a matchup against the Mexican team when win a, win the group, because uh, at the time there was a group stage. Uh, and, uh, then, uh, Javier Morales got sent off, uh, for slapping, I think, Cunningham. I can't remember exactly. Slapping somebody in Dallas, got sent off in the first leg and, and we tied Dallas and, you know, went out in the first round of the playoffs mm-hmm. and that was that. Uh, but then we had an 11, and that was our run in Champions League, you know, where we went to the final and um, had to score a goal. Yeah, where we had to tie Monterey in the, in the return leg because it had been 2-2 in the, in the away leg to start. And uh, went down a goal and hit two posts and, and kind of couldn't couldn't finish it. And that would have been, you know, truly, I think, a transcendental moment for MLS. And um, But that was that was the high point. Those, those that that period there just didn't get any better than that. And and uh, you know to have that success, and and look, I mean, I'll, I do think this impacted why I came to Seattle, like in some deep subconscious part, because uh, you know we played that final in CenturyLink, you know, and like it was amazing. Yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah. yeah. And so to have that, and and you know, every time I went back to CenturyLink after that, I just had this euphoric feeling and experience and, and uh you know just kind of felt like the right place and um so who knows you know things happen for a reason but i mean i i uh you know uh just you know uh seattle's where i you know embraced my brother and my brother cried when we won the title um where he'd gone from last place in the league at rsl for every year of its existence to winning the title in two years and anyway well, it's great. And it actually, you know, again, segues uh, into your your move to Seattle. Um, you, you talked previously a little bit about uh, why you decided to move. Uh, you know, increased, you know, budget uh, obviously helped and, uh, you know, just a, a new challenge. So uh, just, you know, what was uh, behind that thinking uh, of your decision to move to move here? Yeah, look, at the time it was like, hey, you could do it at a small market, but, you know, hey, hey, kid, you know, who, who, let's see if you can do it with the big boys. You know, let's see if you can hang instead of always complaining about how, how much money everybody else has. Why don't you see what you can do with it? Um, and so it was, it was all those things, Mickey. I mean, it was, it was just a ton more potential in Seattle than there was at Salt Lake. There's just more stuff you can do. And, you know, and you've seen that. You know, we, what I, what I think I take to this job is that I, I take that law firm background and I know how to build organizations and, I know how to lead, and I, you know, been in. You know, Latham's a a billion dollar sprawling. I think when I left, thirty five offices around the world. You know, set up, and um, once you're part of something like that, you know, you you know pretty well uh, how you want to run things and how you want to do them. And 
So that's what we did when we got here. We, we set up the player development stuff, and we're now it's just now beginning to pay off four years later. And uh, but that's something that really should put the company on a stronger footing. You know, hopefully for you know for a long time going forward. And and that's you know you like to try to leave things better than you found them. And I think by building that foundation, building that kind of wing of the company that didn't exist before, underneath uh, the Sounders and all the success that they've had, and you know hopefully. Um, inserting some processes where we really were, I think we've really done a very good job of integrating our data analysis. We were very good in the sports science stuff already when we came here, probably uh, probably cutting edge in the league. Dave Tenney was amazing. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to have Damien Roden, who's also amazing now, uh, but Dave really built that foundation. And then, but what we were able to do then is when I came in is to separate the data and analysis from the sports science and take it from not just an on-field thing to, but to an off-field thing and start to apply it in player personnel decisions and start to apply it to tactical decisions in terms of how we want to play. And, you know, it's pretty obvious now, just like in the NBA, you want to get to the hoop or you want to shoot a three, everybody in soccer now wants to get to the sides of the penalty areas and lay balls across, right? So yeah. it's, 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 uh, but, but in order to get to those kind of basic conclusions, you got to do a lot of work. And, you know, I think that's, that's one of the things that's been the most fun here is, um, making us process based. I mean, the way, the way the word we use internally is evidence based. Um, soccer can be very subjective. I like so and so. I like so and so. He did this. He was good. But why? And it becomes a very law firm, lawyer like, idea you know like like okay there's your argument but cite me the law yeah. right so <laughs> cite me the precedent tell me why and that's really what i've tried to install here too is is to have this objective analysis of data and of information such that when you take the analysis and the scouting and the coaching and you put it all together now hopefully you, you have a pretty solid decision because it's supported by you know, by all aspects of that organization. Yeah, and speaking of you know building up or building out the organization, one one thing that always has fascinated me since you've gotten here is uh, your uh, how you've transitioned to the academy, the youth, youth development, and integrated it uh, to uh, vertical integration. I think is the term you like to use uh, with the first team. And so you came in in 2015, 2014, 2015. Yeah, and. At that point, the Sounders had just started S2, or were yes. in the process of, of doing so. Um, and there were some changes that you you made. I think you, you talked a little bit about this, about where the where the team was at that point, uh, and you decided that wasn't necessarily the direction you guys uh, should be going. So I was just curious, what uh, what what was your analysis of what they were planning to do at that point, and, and what made you think that it wasn't exactly the right direction to go? Um, we made the playoffs that first year, and, and, yeah, yeah. and we had uh, no players that we could sign to the first team. And I, I think we literally did. I think we signed Andy Craven and maybe even one more at some point. But it was, you know, it was all guys that weren't going to make it. And so it was like you'd cut, you'd built this thing, but for the wrong objective. And uh, you know, and it was, you know, that had been, you know, based out. Well, I start January fifteen. The team's already signed. I mean, that's all kind of fully baked. And so I'm kind of a passenger for. With respect to the first team, the first six months, and then we uh, wound up having to sign, I think, four guys right at the end of the first window, uh, even Schitz and Valdez yeah. and Freeberg and Torres. I think we signed four guys, and that's why I chuckled when you guys got, got uh, excited about two guys in a week, and I think we signed four in two weeks or four in a week and a half, like at yeah. the end of 15. That's uh, so when I was younger and had fewer gray hairs. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but on the on the S two stuff at the time, when now the Tacoma Defiance, you know, just decided that we we really wanted to reboot it and reset it. And look, we've taken we've probably taken a step or even two steps back in in rebooting it. And we went much younger, and we said instead of twenty three year olds and twenty five year olds, we want to have teenagers because what we what our research showed, what our data showed, was that Christian Boldan debuted at nineteen, and uh, Jordan Morris debuted with the national team at nineteen, and you know Seattle had this legacy of. You know, Chris Henderson, Casey Keller, Marcus Hanneman, Kellen Rowe, DeAndre Ellen. Like, for a city of this size, had produced an, a, a really high number of, like, really good players. Like, those are exceptional uh, outcomes. But so could you systematize it, and could you make it process-based, and now could you accelerate that from, instead of debuting at 19, could you debut at 17? And now by doing that, could you basically push everything forward uh, and increase the number of, A, the number of players you're producing, but also the, the frequency at which you produce those elite players? And by doing it at a younger age, then giving them a longer career and a longer lifespan and, and hopefully a better influence on uh, the Sounders. And so that's the that's the objective. And... Uh, along with that, uh, the team, uh, then Sounders 2, now Tacoma Defiance, uh, moved down to uh, Tacoma uh, and are playing at Cheney Stadium, which I think everyone agrees is a much better experience uh, for the fans. But there was some heartburn about moving out of Starfire uh, from the fans. You know, there's obviously the Sounders Community Trust was a, a part of that. Um, and so from a business perspective, was it that you decided that Starfire wasn't really a long-term solution for what you were trying to do? Uh, what, what kind of went into the decision that Starfire wasn't a long-term, you know, a, a place where you wanted to, to grow uh, the Defiance, now Defiance? Well, look, I mean, our partnership at Starfire have been awesome, and they were very welcoming. And, and But the fact was that playing the games here was a, a strain on their staff, you know, that they were pro- pro- they were providing all of the business support to put the games and the stadium down here. And, look, let's be candid, I, they weren't particularly well attended, you know, at least past the, the first couple of games. And, you know, we had games where we drawing 500 people a game and, and uh, you know, from a business standpoint, that wasn't that wasn't the best possible outcome, and so we wanted to keep experimenting with it, uh, in, in part for pure, purely player development uh, reasons. Where putting teenagers in front of 500 people isn't that intimidating, you know. But if you put them in front of 5,000 people, then that's a little bit more of an atmosphere, and you put it in a, in a you know in a proper stadium, you know, uh, and put it on. Uh, and put it on TV and all those things that contribute to you know a, a higher level, and so we were very excited when we could uh, form the partnership with Rainiers and, and launch the Coma Defiance, and I think it's been a real success so far. And uh, you know, still want to keep building that audience, still trying to get a stadium built down there in Tacoma, um, and if we can do that, I think that would really cement us into that community. And, and I think that that's the you know other teams are now copying our model. I mean, and, you know, look, yeah, we want especially Cheney, uh, exactly, exactly. You know, the rain down there now. Is, as well, which I think helps and helps hopefully get that new stadium built, um, where it's really a community resource and you have women's soccer and men's soccer and, and you know really a lot of things going on there, um, hopefully adjacent to or you know right in the parking lot across from the, the baseball stadium where it becomes a, a mecca and, a, and a, an attraction and a real destination for people to come down and, and have a good time in Tacoma. Yeah, I guess I'll ask you. Uh, I'm not sure how much you can tell me, but uh, what uh, how is the the process going of uh, getting the stadium down there? Uh, uh, constructed or an announcement. I know they were doing some feasibility studies and all that kind of stuff, uh, and uh, there was, you know, hopefully there was going to be an announcement on that relatively soon. Do you, uh, any updates or anything you know about that? Got to defer to my attorney, Maya Mendoza, extra <laughs> on this one, but uh, the, the feasibility studies is nearing completion. So okay. I, I know I know that much. Um, and beyond that, I'll, I'll leave it to our lawyers to, yeah. to give the uh, formal updates, given that it's a public uh, project. 
Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and so I think uh, last, uh, I'll just uh, hit you with kind of a general uh, general question uh, as a lawyer. Uh, have you uh, have you been following all of the various lawsuits in soccer? And do you just find it seems to be an unusual amount of litigation, just generally speaking, in U.S. soccer that doesn't really it's, – it's not seen in other leagues in the United States. I mean, you've got your normal grievances, player grievances, breach of contract, player discipline issues – but a lot of the lawsuits here seem to be going to to litigate the soul or the future of soccer in the United States. So I was just curious if you if you follow that at all, or and uh, what you kind of make of just the the mass of litigation um, in soccer in the United States at this point. We're really getting to the fascinating questions on Mickey. Yeah, yeah. So this well, is a broad fascinated for me, uh, <laughs> maybe not for everybody else. Uh, no, I love this stuff, man. Look, I, I read them honestly, like as a spectator and as a law student. You know, I'm, I'm intellectually interested in kind of the arguments that are made and where it's going. And but look, to get to the core of your question, the answer is all of these hard things are collectively bargained in every other sport, and and we do what we can to collectively bargain them with at the pro level, but. It's a global game, truly a global game, and that leads to conflicts of law type things where you get, well, in other countries they do it this way, and FIFA says we're going to do it this way, and how do we do it? And again, the, the collective bargaining agreement that we have at an MLS level regulates and, and answers a lot of those questions with respect to that, and that's where I think you see some of the differences of, of opinion, where that stuff gets bargained, but it's not a, you know, there's no way to comprehensively bargain the entire yeah. player development system because it crosses think about it I mean it's we have USL and we have the US Soccer Academy and we have pay to play clubs and we ha, you know and we have free academies and it would all of which triggers these these intellectual uh, questions that are very interesting um, and fun to read about if you're a nerdy lawyer <laughs> like <laughs> us yeah. um, you know but but it's it's uh, I do think there, there's there's some uh, just just kind of inherent uh litigation risk, litigation factor that's going to come in when you have three or four different systems that you're trying to kind of regulate and stack. Well, how does this one relate to this one and who has jurisdiction over this and that? And, you know, I do think that uh, it's, I I view it less as a fight for the soul for the sport than of our sport kind of coming of age, you know, Mm -hmm. where finally there's a more mature view as to, I mean, just even an awareness of how the rest of the world does it and a global awareness and um, a desire. I mean, you see it on an MLS level with us starting to participate in the player market. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you look at transfer revenues in MLS, you have certain leagues that operate 50-50, meaning 50% of their expenses are wages and 50% come in through yeah. transfers. Um, and MLS was 98-2. 98 percent, 98% of expenditure on wages and two percent coming in on transfers, and so to state the obvious, you can you can you want to rebalance that, and and that has its own legal implications. Then on, I know how is U.S. law going to interact with yeah. international law with respect to, as you know, international norms and conventions that go are broadly applied to sports but involve trade and antitrust, and mm-hmm. you know these are the layers and layers, and and it's uh, so it's it's yeah. it's fun to read about. Yeah, it's, it's just it's. It's been interesting to see just, again, the kind of pro- proliferation of, of these issues in recent years. Because this is all coming, it has all basically come about in the last five years or so, I would say. Uh, especially uh, with, uh, you know, the NASL fighting with U.S. soccer and, uh, you know, uh, now the women's national team having some fights. And then you got the, you know, the pro role guys, which I'm not going to get into here. Uh, and, you know, you've got the, you know, as opposed to the NFL or NBA, uh, you know, soccer is a global game. And you've got this FIFA organization kind of hovering around um, over everybody, which you don't really have in the NFL or uh, Major League Baseball or or or, or, uh, the, or NBA. 
Um, and so uh, I guess just to finish up, since you uh, since you alluded to it, and I'm not going to ask you anything specific about what's going on, but you also talked about uh, the collective bargaining agreement. And um, at a previous press conference, you talked about how hopeful that the salary cap goes up. Uh, Based on the signings that you've uh, you've made recently, yeah, my, and my bosses probably wouldn't be so happy about that. They yeah, have a different view, but yeah, uh, but it was just um, you know I talked to, to Harry Ship last year a little bit about some of the issues that the players um, and and MLS as a growing league is still kind of grappling with. Uh, what what generally speaking is your is your kind of view of of where the relationship is between the players and and the league, and uh, it sounds like they been talking about getting something done a little earlier than they have in the past. I think Harry said that last time around they started talking in like November or December of the uh, prior to the uh, CBA. So obviously I, I would say it's a good thing that they're talking now. But uh, just what kind of where do you see uh, you know the relationship evolving to as they approach the next uh, negotiation? You know, I, I've never been in that room, so I want to be really careful to say that I don't know. Sure. You know, um, you know, the players are talking to a group of uh, of owners and, and league representatives and stuff, and so it's not technical people in there for the most part. Um, and so, so look, I mean, what I hope is that we reach a mutually agreeable, mutually beneficial resolution and uh, results in the league growing. And uh, you know, the the union has to decide how they best they think is the best strategy to do it and the league has to come up with their with their view and then hopefully they find areas of overlap and, and common ground and, and then they move forward to that so uh, you know without being in the room and without being privy to any of that it's I think it's real tough to speculate or say oh we should do this we should do that I mean it's it's uh, as with any legal negotiation it's it's going to be complex and there's going to be 50 different factors and there's going to be some horse trading and I'll give you this if you give me that and, and that kind of thing and that's the you know, a good deal is probably one where not everybody's thrilled with uh, with every aspect of it, and you know that means it's a compromise. So, um, but but uh, you know, certainly with the growth of the sport, um, you know, I think it's it's still balanced against in the in the kind of buzz and the World Cup's coming in 2026, and um, you know, uh, there's a new television contract that's going to come in in 2022 when when this one expires, and so those are all events and things that look uh, you know, point to the growth, the continued expansion, growth of the league. But the reality is that that a lot of teams are still uh, in the in the red and still losing money. And you know, if you look, if you think about the investment that these folks make. Um, uh, you know, you're talking about now $200 million for the next expansion fee round. Um, and you, you know, the stadiums are going for about $250 million now. Training facilities about $50 million. So you look at that, man. You're $500 million in the hole before, before you start. Before you start. That's yeah. before you sign any staff. That's before any sign any players. So, I mean, look, that is both good and bad, right? I mean, that shows you how much the league is growing. And, and with that kind of investment, I think it's going to be around for a long time. Um, but likewise, it makes the CBA tricky because it means that you've pumped all of this money in up front and you've made this massive investment. And, you know, you're, you don't yet have the ability to say, you know, we got gobs of money falling out of the sky like the NFL does. And, um, you know, I'll make one other comment on your, to your, your legal thing. You know, if you look back at like the landmark sports law stuff that we read in law school, like Kurt Flood in the 1970s, you know, in, in baseball and the antitrust litigation against the NFL, the NFL, uh, NFL merger when, you know, I think that was the early 70s or late 60s maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all of, all the leagues went through this stuff at some point and then kind of emerged on the other end. And, and the reason we don't see, I think the reason why we see more litigation now in soccer is just, 
it's just a younger, newer league. And, you know, the other leagues have kind of matured through this. They've and, already answered the question. Yeah, yep. And, they, and they've gone through some horrible, brutal labor stoppages in most most cases to kind of hammer out what's the framework for going to be for each league and their cap and, you know, their their labor conditions and all that stuff. And, you know, what I'd say maybe most important is that, that we avoid that kind of catastrophic uh, outcome because, um, you know, it is growing. You know, right now all of the, you know, the rising tide is, is lifting all the boats and we need to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, uh, do something to stem that tide and, and uh, you know, really set ourselves backwards. Great. Well, I think that uh, is is a good point to, to cut this interview off. And I just want to thank Garth uh, for joining me uh, on this podcast. And uh, I know he's got a lot of work to do, so I will let you get back to it. And again, thanks for uh, joining me. All right. Thanks for having me.